Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast where I bring the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. Today's guest on the podcast is the host of Passion Struck Podcast, a combat veteran, multi-industry CEO, and author, John R. You like seeing the R? Miles. And John served as a naval officer for 11 years before heading out into the corporate world and serving as a Fortune 50 CIO and CISO. And he's worked with companies like Lowe's, a little company, computer company called Dell, <laughs> and popular startups <laughs> like IDMe and more to aid their cybersecurity and tech initiatives. And we'll get into that in a little bit. He is also a world-class high-performance coach, helping many clients transition into the C-suite. And through his Passion Struck podcast, John enjoys the opportunity to make passion go viral. So let's get started hear more on what it means to be passion struck john welcome to the podcast adam thank you so much and i just have to say i'm, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and um just feel very honored to be here on your show so you're doing a great job and uh love to catch it when i can and I, and I appreciate that. And, and, and likewise, thank you so much for having me on the Passion Struck Show. And, and for anyone out there, that's really what it's all about. Just a little side note on, on podcasting. My approach, and I think John would agree, it's collaboration over competition. There's an abundance of ears and eyes out there. And this is really the best way to connect and introduce our shows to our, our unique audiences. And, and I really encourage other podcasters out there to do it. So let's get started. I want to bring my tribe up to speed on your background. When was it that you said, you know what, I am going to go into the military and I'm going to go the course of the Navy. Was there other members of your family? Did you, were you following family traditions? Well, it's an interesting story. I actually grew up in South Central Pennsylvania uh, in the York, Lancaster, Harrisburg kind of area. And so anytime we had relatives that would come in, we would always take them to Annapolis so that, because they always wanted to see the Naval Academy and it's beautiful there. And I remember growing up as a kid, especially when I was younger, and hearing the poor plebes getting screamed at as you're walking around campus. I'm like, who in the world would put themselves through this? But um, as I you know, got older and I was looking at college options, um, I was destined to go to University of Michigan. My, my parents had gone there, my grandparents, my aunt, uh, everyone. And I was kind of raised that that it's the only university. But my grandfather and my father were both veterans. Uh, my grandfather was an officer, um, actually, initially in the Airborne. And then um, it's, it's a crazy story. He was literally two weeks away from deploying, um, had done all the preparations, and then he got orders from the Secretary of Defense to report to Fort Detrick. And my grandfather um, had a master's in pharmacy and chemical engineering, um, reported to Fort Detrick. And after about uh, two weeks of getting testing and other things, um, his college professor from Michigan met him and said, I've recruited you into the chemical warfare program Interesting. For, for the military, which is a story he couldn't tell me until I was about... 35 or 38 was, was because it he was, he was, it was sworn. He had a 50 year uh, wow. battle of secrecy. Um, and my, and my father also is an interesting story. He was a Marine. Um, but when he went in during the Korean war, they were just restarting what today is called MARSOC Marine Corps special operations command. Um, it used to be called force recon. But when he went in, they didn't have a force recon school for them to go to. So they actually sent him to SEAL school. So ah. he went 
he's uh, underwater demolition, you know, UDT class of 16. So he's actually a frogman and a Marine Corps Force Recon. So this is um, in your blood. So this is in your blood. So it was in my blood, but but interestingly enough, both of them were discouraging me from going, or they said, if you're going to do it, you really have to want to do it. So um, it just came down to, you know, I just felt like I had a calling. And to me, I wanted to learn to be a better leader. Um, I had started working at a really young age. I was I had a, a paper out since I was in fifth grade. So leadership Why? was always it was always kind of it was always kind of kind of kind of your path there. Um, I want to I want to dig into it a little bit. And you spearheaded the formation. I'm going to butcher this. The Expeditionary Tactical Information Operations Support, codename Etios, while you were there with the Navy Naval Special Warfare Unit Ten. What was it like to build this a leadership system? What was it like to build a system within within the Navy in the military? Well, in most cases, it was very it was very difficult. And this opportunity. Um, came to me kind of out of nowhere. Um, I had wanted to service select special warfare when I was at the Naval Academy. And unfortunately, um, I played um, for the rugby team and and for our club hockey team and had a number of uh, concussions. And it caused me to have symptoms of vertigo and hypovestibular dysfunction. And so because of those, um, I, I was not permitted to do um, my SEAL billet, which I had selected. So I ended up um, having to select um, cryptology and became a spook. And it just so happens um, I got attached to you know a classified group within NSA, and they asked me if I would lead up this program. So that's kind of how it started. Now, it became easier for me because the place that you know, I was sent to was Naval Special Warfare Unit 10 in Rota, Spain, and it was a smaller command, so it wasn't as if we were with a full um, right. SEAL team. So, so we were able to not only train with them, but we were able to train with a lot of allied forces. So, you know, we got to work with the Spanish, the Italian, for French Foreign Legion, um, some of the SAS, and so... By having that exposure and being able to work with them in a close-knit training command, I think it made it easier to roll out. And then from there, we would then go on deployments, um, either in the Mediterranean or the Persian Gulf, to test the concept that we were we were doing, which was to cr create a function. Because at that time, the these SEAL teams really had very poor intelligence and especially you know on scene intelligence so that's well, much what different we, than today i mean i mean light years completely light, light years ahead from a from a technology and an information standpoint so that's interesting so you know was were you always that natural born leader or is that something that emerged throughout your tenure in the in the navy and we'll get to your transition out of the military in a little bit but you know did you always kind of feel that you 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 were destined to be a leader and and instill leadership in others I think it just was something that naturally occurred. Um, I got my first job, official job outside of the paper route uh, when I was about 14 and started working for giant food stores. And, you know, I started out like anyone would as a bagger and then I became a cashier, but I, I guess they recognized I had leadership potential. So, you know, at 15, 15 and a half, I became the produce supervisor. And then they elevated me to be the supervisor of truck crew which was a very unique experience because I was the only one there who wasn't an ex-con. <laughs> Everyone else was actually an ex-con and they were all, you know, 20 to like 28. Rough, so, rough, you know, having effect. a 16-year-old kid, you know, take over that, That's you know, really point. gave me exposure to, you know, you have to lead people completely different ways. And so I think it was just something that came natural to me. Um but I think people can definitely learn leadership um, as well. But for some of us, it's just a more natural calling. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. So let's talk about your transition out of the military. Was there ever a thought that you were going to be, you know, in it for life or you always had an exit plan? No, I think I went into it like 
all of us probably go into it when you go to the Naval Academy is that, you know, you're, you're going to the Naval Academy because they're training you to be a professional officer. Mm -hmm. And so my last tour of command was on a joint interagency task force. It used to be called East. It's now called South. And that is the counter drug task force um, for the United States. It was an incredible com command. Actually, the Department of Homeland Security. And what, um, what, what, year, what year was that? Just to give reference to everybody. That was like 96 through 98 yeah, ish yeah. time frame. Um, but Big years later, I, mm -hmm. I actually met uh, Secretary Tom Ridge, who told me that he modeled, he was the first head of the Department of Homeland Security. He told me he actually modeled it after our command because wow. we were the only joint command at that point that had ever been able to fuse diverse information and work in a cooperative manner. And on that command, we had all the different services, FBI, CIA, DEA, NSA, and I was running the NSA contingent, um, the executive officer for it. Um, but we had forces deployed throughout the Mediterranean, the Far East, and then we had people on the command from Colombia, Mexico, Ecuador, Denmark, I you know, et cetera. What's, what's the secret sauce to pulling all these disparate groups together? I mean, we're not just talking about different groups within the United States government's agencies. We're talking about international, and you're dealing with politics. You're dealing with some, I am sure in the drug trade, some shady shit going on, right? Like, how did you manage this? So how did you bring everyone together? Well, it all comes down to who gets credit. And so that was the biggest issue we had to figure out because DEA didn't want to send information if FBI was going to get credit for the introduction you know, interdiction. So we had to figure out the way to give the proper credit for the person who was responsible for bringing the information. Um, you know, it was a little bit different depending on which foreign country it was, because some of them, um, we give more access to information. Others, we'd keep more at an arm's length distance. But I just saw complete cooperation from everyone. And if we had to target, there was kind of mutual agreement, we were all going to pursue it. And you know, all of us achieving success was better than one group potentially achieving success. But through that experience, um, I was encouraged at that point to to leave the military. And I applied for the CIA, the NSA, um, FBI and DEA got appointments to each one and ended up service selecting uh, the FBI to become a special agent. And I thought that was going to be the career. I mean, that was the reason I left the military. And I get out of the military. I'm supposed to report to Quantico two weeks later. Um, a week before I'm supposed to report, I get a call from my detailer. And, and imagine, I've, I've been doing testing now for a year um, for all of these different things, polygraphs, physical can't, exams. Can't imagine. It, you know, and then he calls me up. <laughs> He calls me up and says, uh, Congress, like they have these, you know, issues where they're not approving the budget. And I got caught up in that and they recycled my class. And I never remember, I will never forget what he told me, which is your class could get recycled six months from now or three years from now, but you got to go find a job in the interim. And I'm like, well, what do I tell the employer? He goes, well, don't tell him you're going to the FBI. <laughs> Just go out and do it. So. You well, kind of forced it to, into the real world, <laughs> into the, into the I, corporate America. You're for, and, and at this point, I had no backup plan. You know, I couldn't go back to the other agencies because I'd already turned them down. I had not been job searching because I was going to the FBI. And so I'm thrust in this thing where I'm, you know, married at the time. I've got a, a wife who is counting on me. And so... I went on this mad dash and um, luckily uh, found an Air Force Academy grad who was working at Booz Allen, who, who got me an interview. And ironically, the first project I ever worked on was developing the Infrastructure Protection Center strategy for the FBI. Go figure. Go figure that. So let me ask you a question. <laughs> so when I was doing my research, I found a quote from uh, Edwin uh, Booz who co-founded Booz Allen, uh, where you worked early on. And the quote went like this, start with character and fear not the future. That one stood out to me. What comes to mind when you think about that quote? Start with character and fear not the future. 
I think it really, uh, it really speaks to Booz Allen's philosophy. And I, I have to tell you, it was one of the best companies I've ever worked for. You know, I know they've gone through a tremendous amount of change now that the commercial division has been split out, but, you know, it was a company that was very much um, about the character and the core values of the people who were there. And, you know, the processes that they put in place for, you know, their red team approach of, you know, we had different teams as we would bid, especially on uh, public sector work and the scrutiny and how you presented yourself and the fact that we were going to do it uh, above board all the time, you know, really enamored me with the firm. It's your how. It's your, it's your how. It's how you go about everything. I mean, what would you say is the biggest difference between serving in the Navy and working at these at these large companies? You know, what what like was it a big adjustment for you? Like when, I mean, right, because we took a chain of command, there's politics involved in both places, but what's that core difference and, and what was hardest for you? Well, I mean, I think it is a pretty big difference. You know, when I'm on the uh, Joint Interagency Task Force, we had a two-star admiral who was leading it. You know, I was a, a lonely lieutenant and, you know, my boss was an 06. Most of the, the heads of J3, et cetera, were 06s. And so... It was definitely a top-down methodology. What I found about Booz was um, that they had more flexibility in for you to bring ideas and creativity um, and new ways of doing things that the leadership would listen to, especially when I got moved to San Diego to help start uh, that practice. And even though the majority of the leadership um, did come from the military, um, I didn't feel as if it was um, as pushed down command and control as it was um, in the military. The other thing is, is you it's a big shift from when you are the customer to having to serve the customer. And that's so that was a big difference. Yeah, that's 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 a big one. So, you know, the ex, you know, so for me, having been on the other side, you know, it actually made me raise my game because I didn't want to let my customer down, so to speak. Interesting perspective. So let's let's pivot and talk about your work at Dell. And you helped them make a major pivot, speaking of pivots, between a hardware base to an end-to-end -end software solutions company. What, what was the approach here? How'd you, how did you accomplish that transition? And what was that, that key fundamental, whether it was a mindset shift, a strategy shift that needed to be, you needed to sell internally? Well, I just want to be clear. I was part of the team um, on that strategy. Um, it, it was called Best Value. There were three core strategies at that time. One was EDEL. Another was Best Value Solutions, uh, which was pivoting from being a uh, product provider to a solutions provider. And then we were also um, working on the supply chain of the future because at that point in time, the entire supply chain had been created to support this, you know, Dell's configuration of their PCs. And we were switching to a model where we weren't going to do that anymore. Mm. And we were just going to offer common configurations in, you know, whether it was on the server side or the um, consumer side. So on, on that other side, um, there were so many challenges. When I walked in the door, we had close to 10,000 different applications. And the way that Dell had grown over time, like many companies do, is through accidental architecture. I mean, you, you know, they started out, you know, as a US-based company, then expanded globally, built, you know, a system to support the globe, then the global centers of excellence, each wanted their own applications. So then they started creating their own. And so in each of these regions, you had your own separate systems. I can imagine. The you know, and it, and it was like an accordion. So when, when I got there, we were trying to get it from 10,000 down to 2,000 for one challenge. But the other challenge is as you're doing that, you have to standardize all the data elements um, across the company. Um, and then on top of that, create new systems that are going to be able to support selling software and services in a different way than we did. So the challenges were um, the way Dell was led at that time, and I'm not sure if Michael still leads it the same way, is um, 
there were literally six or seven presidents who were all competing against each other. So the most difficult thing for me was you had the six or seven presidents who at that time had in many ways their own system supporting their divisions who didn't want to change it no. because the way it, the way it worked is if you were the top president, you're probably making 35, 40 million a year. If you're the bottom person, you're getting fired. That was how the GE model worked at, at Dell. And so there was tremendous pressure. Competition. You know, That's competition. Um, but Michael um, was conflict adverse. And so he didn't kind of settle that conflict. So it required people who were in roles like mine who cut across all of them to have to figure out uh, navigate the inner workings of the politics of the day. Yeah, but you and were so I think I mean, for me, looking back, it was a it was a time in my career where I was truly naive about the situation that I was walking into and how political it was. I mean, I imagined it was going to be political. I imagined there was going to be fight back against what we were trying to accomplish, but never in the realm of enormity as what it what it turned out to be. Was was that what pushed you out of Dell? To to Lowe's? Well, I know I went from Lowe's to Dell. Sorry. Um, so so what ended up happening is I discovered that the solution that we were implementing, so at so at this point, one of the presidents um, who was running the the large enterprise division used to hold my job and he made a deal with Oracle um, that we became Oracle's largest customer in the world. We were spending over $100 million a year. And the idea was we were going to implement their entire suite of products. Well, we had another division um, led by a guy by the name of Dave Johnson, um, who was leading strategy and kind of the new corporate development of where we needed to go. And he was trying to purchase these software companies who needed subscription billing and other capabilities. When I started looking at it, the solutions that we had from Oracle could not fulfill the future business model that Dave was trying to build. And so at that point, I arranged a small team of, you know, my, I, I took my highest achievers, put them on this team and said, come up with a different way. And so the way we were implementing Oracle was on, in an on-premise, meaning putting it in our data center mode. But I said, just figure out the quickest path. So they developed a, a solution that included all cloud providers, you know, connecting to actually the cloud Oracle solution on the back end, um, but came up with a solution that we could put in place within nine to 10 months that would probably cost us 15 million and do the same thing that we were doing with the other system, which was costing us $125 million a year on top of the Oracle cost and was going to run for seven years. I mean, and so you might think I, I, I go to present this to the steering committee and that um, gentleman who had originally came up with the idea to use this other solution and had sold it to the board felt like he had pie in his face. So he went on a negative campaign to politics, people, politics to this to the CFO, to his his other peers, and they would not move forward on this other solution. Al although people who weren't on the steering committee, like Dave Johnson, Ron Rose, and others, completely agreed with my position, and so I basically had a choice to make: either I was going to take this to Michael and the shareholders and say this is the way we are, are, are we need to go because it's going to save literally hundreds of millions of dollars and allow for this billions of dollars of expansion or i can just cut you know go and take the easier route and just do what this president wanted and so i took the tougher route made the recommendation unfortunately you know at that point uh, one president can torpedo your career that's yeah. what happened but I, you know, I left Dell and an amazing thing happened about uh, 12 to 18 months later. Uh, my person who relieved my role, Andy Karaboudis, called me up and said, you're never going to believe what happened. 
Um, we were in a meeting today. Michael was there, Brian Gladden, the CFO, and he looked across the room, started yelling at the president who had forced you out and, and said, by God, Miles was right all along. We should have trusted his judgment. Ah, <laughs> uh, look you at know, that, hindsight. <laughs> but, but you know, you know, at that point, um, you know, and I'm sure you've been in the same place that the damage has already been done. Yeah, it's, um, it's already, it's already, you know, the, the ship, the, the ship has sailed there. Hey everybody, first I'd like to thank you all for spending time with me and my guest on the podcast. This show is my canvas to showcase amazing people from the world of recruiting, entrepreneurship, and leadership, and unpack their career journeys for everyone to learn from. But this show is also a business generator for me, as well as creating thought leadership and endless amazing content. And I've taken what I've learned in the past three years and over 200 recorded and 100 live shows and distilled it down into a digital playbook that I call the Pause Course. Now you could learn how I build, manage, and produce the podcast and use it to drive real business development and relationships. Today, I'm sharing all of my secrets behind the podcast, and you can get it all at thepausecourse.com. This course is for anyone, whether you're starting out or an advanced podcaster using it for B2B, a B2C, it's filled with all of my insights, learnings, tips, tricks, and templates. So get it now at thepausecourse.com and learn all my secrets. Thanks. So I want to I want to pivot John and I want I want to talk about some personal stuff here and you 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 talk about it you know publicly of of personal um you know unhappiness where 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 did where did where did that come from at the time Well I think like many people you know I got into this career you know accidentally uh, in many ways because I had wanted to become you know a federal employee and work for the FBI and so um I kind of started on this corporate um, career kind of out of necessity. Mm. And, you know, there were two pivotal things that kind of happened to me. I I left Booz Allen and I went to Arthur Anderson and my career was, you know, taking off. I had started a new practice. We were making tremendous amounts of money um, and out of nowhere, Enron hit. And I was in Houston, so I was in the epicenter for it. I had never worked on Enron, so I thought I would be safe. But literally, you know, millions of dollars of books of business evaporated overnight. And I was, again, forced to start a new career. So I got into this corporate career. And I think what happened to me is I became, like a lot of people, so fixated. You know, I think it's this military um, background that I had where, you know, your, your thought is advancement, getting to the top, et cetera. And so that's where a lot of my focus was. And I got caught up, um, completely in the grind. And I think I for a decade, the toll, the toll that took on you and your personal life and your relationships. Yeah. And so by the time I hit Dell, you know, at Dell, I was easily working hundred hour weeks, every other Every two weeks, I was on a global trip, and it just started taking a toll on me physically, mentally, spiritually. Imagine. You know, it started impacting my relationship at home. You know, I think it was the precursor of, you know, leading to my divorce. And, you know, I just felt like everything was unraveling. And I think a lot of people feel this way, but you feel stuck because your family gets used to a certain standard of living, certain cars that they're driving you start identifying yourself, you know, people would ask me, I hate this question, but what do you do? You know, and the easy thing would, you know, I'm the CIO for Dell, or I'm the CEO for this private equity company, or I'm operating partner. I mean, we get so defined by the wrong things. And that was what was happening to me. So, you know, I finally reached this point um, where I went to a career advisor who gave me an analogy that kind of completely changed my perspective um, going forward in life. And he said to me, John, you're like living your life on a stool that has one major support. And that one major support is really wrapped around your career. But if anything happens to that career, you're going to topple over. And because you've got nothing else holding you up. And so he said, you know, you really need to think about this as a stool with multiple uh, legs to it. And think about these things in the passions that bring you happiness and fulfillment, you know, and that can be anything for, for someone, it could be, 
being a yoga instructor. For someone, it could be a love for sailing. You know, I decided for me that they were going to be career relationships, physical health, mental health, spiritual it's an, health. It's an epiphany. You had an epiphany. Yeah, and, and I was like, you've got you've got to start leading your life in a more balanced way because you're completely burning yourself out and you're going to send yourself to a cardiac arrest or something else. And so, you know, I, I would say I had that epiphany about seven years ago. You know, I pivoted to owning my own company and, and doing fractional um, senior level work. You know, I'd go in as a fractional CEO, COO, CIO, whatever it may be. But I found even doing that, that um, what I was doing is what I've been doing my whole career. I'd been making other people's dreams come true, but I wasn't making my turn. own dreams come, come true. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And and I want to I want to touch on something else personal, uh, really traumatic. And if you don't mind me asking about in 2017, you came home to an armed burglary that had to be um you know, traumatic, but what, what, if you don't mind sharing what, what happened and, and how maybe you were better enabled to handle that stress and trauma than maybe you would have been a few years previously when you weren't in the right state of mind. Well, yes and no. Um, so uh, it was just a typical day. Um, I went, dropped my daughter off at school. Thank God. Um, it was a school day and then did what I normally do, went to the gym early in, in the morning after dropping her off. And um, I was supposed to take an Orange Theory class that morning. And they had an electrical fire in their um, fuse box for their air handler. And so they all had to evacuate. And so I ended up going home. And I think what happened is that I had been profiled you walked in. Um, in fact, I, I know I know it at this point, and they thought I was going to be gone because it was my regular schedule. And I walked in the house, and I was renting it at, at this point in time. Um, you know, I had recently uh, gone through a divorce, and as I walked in, I saw this strange pair of workman boots on the floor leading upstairs. And my first inclination wasn't that um, you know there was an intruder in the house; it was that you yours. know the rental. The rental company had sent someone to do work because I had had some right, toilet right, issues. Right. Um, normal, like they had never. Think, you weren't even thinking. You weren't even thinking of, of anything could be wrong. You just they had never it. sent. Yeah, they had always Why called would they before. Take their shoes off, right? That's a weird. And maybe just to. Yeah, I, I still don't know. I still don't know to this day why they would take the shoes off. Uh, that's, but that's I, so I ended up walking up the stairs and I'm saying, "Hey, is someone here? Is this the?" you know, Dean and DeWitt um, employee, and I'm not hearing anything. I thought, okay, they've got headset on. They're just not hearing me. And so I wrap around the corner of the stairs um, and there is um, a large gentleman there pointing a gun at me, uh, which turned out to be my, my handgun. Oh man. Um, and then you've got an instant to react. So, you, you know, we're, we're trained, you know, in the military, not to look at the person's face, but to look at the firearm. And so I immediately kind of did a duck and roll, went flying down the stairs. Wow. You know, I remember just crashing into the wall in front of me, you know, bumped my shoulder going out, tripped on the wet concrete going out, screwed up my Achilles. Um, oh, and luckily, you know, I, I got out. And, you know, the crazy thing was at that point I had no idea how did this person get in you know they i went out the back door they ended up going out the front door and the police come and we're sitting in my foyer and one of the police officers starts laughing and i'm like you know this isn't funny what's so funny he goes come out here and look and in my door was a key to my house that on it had my alarm code my gate code and my alarm passcode how'd he get it so it uh, turns out that the person who committed this crime was the head of uh, repairs for the rental company. Inside job. And so the rental company, this really bothered me because the person is... who headed this, the, the rental company knew I was a Naval Academy grad and part of what got stolen was my Naval Academy ring and said, you know, I will do everything to cooperate because my grandfather was a Naval Academy grad. Messed up. That's messed up. 
Well, instead of cooperating, the police found out he actually warned this employee who then disappeared for three, four months. And, you know, as fate would have it, he burglarized um, a number of boats and in one of the local harborages months later, they went to his house and found my items in his bedroom. So you got everything back? Um, no. Not everything. Did you no. Get back? Nope. I had about $100,000 worth of items stolen, and oh I God. got back uh, one watch, uh, two watches, and one other so really. But, you know, he had my passport. He had my dive card. He had grandmother's wedding ring. He had my grandfather's, you know, ring that he gave me, cufflinks, um, a watch he was given by Kraft for 40 years of service. You know, things that you just can't replace. Jeez. You know, I had thousands of dollars in cash. Um, but he knew exactly where to go because it turns out a week before that, um, he was in the house um, doing another repair and scoped it out. That is, that but, is terrible. I mean. So the, the interesting thing is, you know, I had, I have undergone my fair share of, of trauma. I think a lot of people do, but, you know, I had at that point kind of, been able to to deal with some of the military trauma, some of some physical assault trauma I had had in my past. And, you know, at first I thought I was okay, but over the ensuing weeks and months, you know, things just started unraveling and I found I wasn't sleeping. You know, I didn't want to be in my bedroom where the perpetrator had been. I, I was having flashbacks. I was having, and so it really, forced me over time, um, things were unraveling to a point that, um, you know, I couldn't stay focused on things. And I, you know, I'd never experienced this amount of, this is real, PTSD. Um, this is real, real trauma. And so, you know, I, you know, I have now gone through, uh, cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure therapy, um, you know, and I'm, I'm getting ready to do some things around post-traumatic growth through the Boulder Crest foundation. But, um, you know, it's, it's really taking me um, a good 18 months of work to kind of get back to, you know, the mindset uh, of, of where I was kind of before. Well, I, I, pre I really appreciate you sharing that story and, and, you know, the message for anyone out there going through the trauma and correct me is just make sure you, you take care of yourself and you get the right help and you seek the right help and you surround yourself with, with, with the right people. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing I would say is is don't do what I tried to do, which is just to suppress it and think it's just going to go away because it isn't. You know, these stuck points are real. And until you start dealing with them, and it, it doesn't have to be trauma, it could be any stuck point in your life. I mean, that's why we don't make the changes that we need to make in life is because we have these stuck points where we choose to stay in complacency in our situation instead of dealing with the hard work that it's going to take to get out of it. But it I can work. tell you the other side of it is, is night and day um, compared to, you know, the depression, the numbness and everything else that you're feeling. I appreciate you really um, being vulnerable and, and sharing that with, with our audience here. So let, let's switch gears. And, and I want to talk about the podcast. I want to talk about the, you know, the coaching and you've coached tons of high profile people in the C-suite, give it, give us a glimpse of, of your coaching approach and, and, and mindset, and maybe a couple of the, the real big pieces that you work with these senior leaders on. So everyone has a different starting point, uh, because we're all different. And so I think the first thing that you really need to understand is where on the continuum is this person. And, and I help clients both you know, how do you establish a passion struck culture in a company? You know, how do you get employees engaged? So I will work with a leader in that way, um, or I will work with someone on an individual basis. If it's an individual basis, um, in my upcoming book, I have a chapter I've written called the um, five transition points on the passion struck journey. And it starts with the concept of being a subsister meaning you're subsisting in life, you're in the status quo, you're in this repeat Existing. you know, pattern. Yeah, a lot of people at this stage are feeling hopeless. They're feeling like they can't get out of their own way. They, they feel paralyzed, they feel numb. 
On the complete other spectrum is um, an, a person that I call who is a creative amplifier. And a creative mm -hmm. amplifier is the complete opposite in every single way. You know, when you're in this subsisting mode, you're, you're self-centric, you're egotistical. When you're in this creative amplifier mode, you're resilient, you're world-centric, you're focused on decisions that you're making for the benefit of society as a whole. Um, and you're really focused on, you know, how do you make your life into a legacy and live regret-free? Um, and at this point, you're performing, you know, at a much higher caliber. You know, you're, you're trying to achieve and want to achieve peak performance and everything that you're doing. So I've, I try to find, you know, along these five transition points, where is the person at um, initially? And then that starts allowing, allowing me to understand what are the things that we need to do. But almost always it starts with um, the first step on the passion struck framework, which is to become a mission angler. And there are really two steps to that. One is they have to understand and admit to the reality of the situation. Well, it's self-awareness. That it's the first step in any type right. of change is recognition and be able to look in the mirror and say, I need to change and I need to be open and be able to listen and, and want to change, right? Yeah, well, and then the next step is you got to figure out, and I call it mission angler, because what is that mission for life that you want to have? But until you allow yourself to be open that you're not where you want to be, it's difficult to figure out where you want to go. But, you know, after that, um, you know, then the next thing you've got to do is become a fear confronter and start dealing with the biggest enemy, which is yourself and get out of your own way, start ruling over your weaknesses and start making incremental change. And, you know, the way most people typically have to do it is they become this concept of what I call a mosquito auditor, and they've got to get out the toxic people, toxic situations, toxic right. actions that they're taking, and then, you know, change their perspective and start taking, you know, positive actions um, Love it. along the continuum. So that's kind of the path I take. That, that's good stuff. So let's talk about the the podcast, the Passion Truck Podcast. Um, who is it? Who is it for? And 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 what's your what's your goal with the show? What do you want to accomplish with it? So the audience it has been in that 25 to 44 range is where the majority of the audience is. Right now, it's about 68% male, 32% um, female. Um, in, in that demographic, I would say that the YouTube channel I have swings a little bit uh, to, the, to the younger age, and the podcast is, is kind of... Um, Kind of the median to to upper age of that range but i'm really going after um i want to start a worldwide movement to help people regain their passion and unlock a no regrets life and so what i'm trying to do with the podcast is to bring on high achievers and um some of these are a-listers but the vast majority are common people like myself and me <laughs> and you and, you know, who have, because I find when I'm listening to these podcasts and I think it's, it's great to listen to, you know, a mutual friend of ours, Jordan Harbinger, or, you know, Impact Theory, yep. School of Greatness, you know, Jay, Jay Shetty on purpose. But oftentimes I think some of the guests they have on, on those shows, people have a hard time relating to because it's like, yep. how do I go from me to becoming Michael Dell? Right. And so I've tried to strike a balance between bringing on real people on the show like who that. have changed their lives. And what I try to do is give the listeners the tools through these interviews of the changes that these people made. And after a while, you see these repeat patterns keep coming back. And then I also offer, uh, every, so that's Tuesday. And then on Friday, I try to do a solo episode. I, I do it about 90% of the time. Um, if not, I throw in another interview, but on those, I call them momentum Fridays nice. and it started off with me picking topics. Um, but now I would say, you know, 80% of the time it's a topic that uh, a listener is, 
DMing me about on Instagram or reaching out on LinkedIn or whatever. And so now I'm really trying to answer more and more um, questions from the audience, which is where I hoped it would always yeah. go. And, and Harbinger does a great job of that. He has a, the Friday episodes. He does a really good job on that and, and someone we both admire. And, and, I, and I sense a lot of similarities in, in kind of the mission of our of our shows. Uh, you know, I, I, I love having big guests, but I, I find some of the other guests that are lesser known have just such incredible stories and wisdom and, and they're more relatable here. So let, let's bring it home here. Let's bring it home, John. Um, what is the single greatest piece of advice you've ever received that you take action on every single day? I have a personal motto that it's better to blaze the trail than to be blazed by the trail. And I think that that has been something that has always propelled me in every job I've had, meaning you can wait around and wait for someone else to tell you how to do it, or you can take the initiative, be an originality embracer and figure out a way to get it done. And so that's something that I think has been a hallmark for me of, of everything I've tried to do is to find originality in whatever job, you know, whatever thing I was trying to do, whether it's been philanthropic or in my career. I love it. That's, that's powerful. And John, last but not least, you know, you, you look back on your life and you think about those, those tough times and, and, and not just the, the armed robbery, but the, the trauma you've gone through throughout your career, your life, personal, professional, you've been through a lot, man. You've been, you've, you've lived a lot of lives and in those moments when you really had to dig down deep and harness that inner tenacity that you have that burns bright. And on the flip side of that, when you find inner peace, you know, the, the love and respect and your children and your family, what is your compass? What is your guiding light? John Miles, what is your North Star in life? So, I mean, the first thing I, I would want to tell the audience is that it is okay to fail. And it is okay to feel weakness and it is okay to have bad days and it's okay to have these moments where you feel like you just want to give up. Um, I think it happens to all of us, whether it was Steve jobs, mm -hmm. you know, or general McChrystal or whoever it, it is, we all have these moments of self doubt. I think you've got a choice to make at that moment. Um, you can either give into that or you can start finding ways to build resilience in your life and find a way to pick yourself up and to take the next step. And what I have found is, you know, when I've had some of these biggest downfalls, you know, in my career, um, I truly am a believer of failing fast if you're going to fail and fail often. But when you're at your lowest point, the one advantage is that you have is that you can rebuild your life brick by brick and yes. you can do it in a much better way with a much solid foundation um, than you had before. So my, my North star is, you know, for a portion of my career, I was really focused on serving myself and advancing my career. And now I'm really focused on serving others and really igniting this movement of getting people to start living their lives differently because the world right now is a crazy place. Just in, if you look at the United States alone and it really crosses to all Western countries, we've been in a 30 to 35 year decline in entrepreneurship rates and business vitality. And some people might be saying, Everyone I know is an entrepreneur. Yeah. But when you look at, and I've studied Brookings, the real studies, numbers, the real, not the, the real numbers. The real numbers yeah. Every single year since around the early 70s, we've been on a 20% or more decline. And if you want to look at this as a V on a horizontal axis, if you look at the number of people who are joining firms that have 250 or more, that is going up. Interesting. In an inverse vertical as the one that's well, going down. But but I think we're on the verge here of a major change. And I think the American dream, as most of us were brought up to realize it, if it's not dead already, it's dying. And that's because 
you know, the, the whole dream was land ownership, this big house in suburbia, the car, all these things. And people now are taking these jobs in these major corporations and 85% of them are disengaged. Yeah. Definitely. And so, and so I think the change that's coming is we're going to go back to the age when people were blacksmiths and farmers and had these personal professions, because I think with the all digital world that's around us and especially, you know, the automation and the science that's coming, so many people are going to lose their jobs. They're going to be it's forced coming. to do something else. And so what I am trying to do is build a company to lay the frown, framework that I can start providing the content and education to help this next generation of solopreneurs um, ha have an opportunity to do this, not crawling, but walking and running and sprinting to this new opportunity that's in front of us. So that is really the North star and, and where I'm, where I'm trying to take things. I love it. John, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I want everyone to check out the Passion Struck podcast. It can be found on all the major platforms. And uh, where else could people find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more? So I appreciate that question. A lot of podcasts don't give the guests this opportunity. To. So it's I really appreciate 101. it. 101, 101 people. Podcasting 101. Always give the guests their props. So, their prompt. so, so I, do, I do want to hit on this. So I recently talked to a branding expert. The reason I use John R. Miles, which is you can find me on my website at johnrmiles.com, is because there was a famous uh, musician named John Miles, and it is impossible to rank it. against that person. But this branding person said, I don't like John R. Miles at all. You should start calling yourself JR and start wow. going by JR Miles. And I'm like, so mm -hmm. you can find me everywhere Instagram, um, Twitter. LinkedIn at John R. Miles. And if you're interested in the Passion Struck brand podcast, um, you can go to passionstruck.com. Um, and we are on podcast players everywhere around the world. Fantastic. John, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Hang with me one moment here as I sign off. Um, this is a good one, folks. I really hope that you... Uh... You dig into John's background. I mean, we could have we could have talked all day. I could have made this a ten part episode and went super deep on so many different areas here. But I really wanted to give you um, uh, a good insight into John, who he is, and if you want to find out more, please look him up. Remember, sharing means caring. So if you like this episode, please share it with everybody. You know where to find out more at thepodcast.com and all the other social media channels. Remember, take care of each other, look out for one another, and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.